All right, good evening. We're live and uh, we're recording. So, uh, welcome to Bible study tonight. Good to see you all here and those watching on Facebook. We've been going through the book of Deuteronomy and tonight we hope hope to uh, cover the third and fourth chapters, but especially the third uh, chapter. But we'll probably get into the fourth also. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day that you have given us. This is the day that you have made. Uh, help us to rejoice and be glad in it. Father, I ask you to uh, bless our time in your word tonight as we continue through this book of yours that you wrote for us and for our instruction. I ask you, Lord, to send the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear tonight, the gospel truths as we learn about you, um, as we learn about uh, how um, subject matter that we study tonight points to Christ and the gospel and how we can be enriched and encouraged by it as believers and how sinners can be led to repentance. And Lord, I ask you to fill me with your spirit uh, to teach this lesson well. In Christ's name, amen. So, um, last week we looked at the the travel instructions uh, where they crossed into the land of Edom and then they crossed the land of Moab, you know, in the second chapter. And then they bypassed the land of the Ammonites. And then we saw at the end of chapter 2 where they uh, crossed into uh, the land of uh, Hespen and they defeated uh, Sihon who was the king of uh, Hespen so we read that in the last uh, few verses of chapter 2 and we talked about how you know God had promised Israel uh, this land uh, through Abraham began the covenant with him and Isaac and Jacob and that they were going to have to conquest the land. That's how land was um, given. Basically, God had gave them the land, so they went in to conquest the land uh, because God had given it over to them. We, we talked about that. Uh, we read about that where God gave them the land. God delivered uh, all of it to them. This was God fulfilling his covenant promise. Uh, to Israel and this is something about conquest I want to um, say right quick pretty much when you look throughout the world uh, the world map if you know a little bit about world history pretty much every nation that was formed was formed through conquest where invading armies came in or invading people came in they liked the land and they went to war with the people that were in the land and whoever won got the land. Um, that's how countries were formed through conquest. Um, so we see this going all the way back to Bible days where you know, God had given all his land to Israel. They weren't going to just walk in and take it. You know, Those nations were going to defend their land, uh, but God had already given this over to Israel so they got the victory. Uh, our nation uh, the United States uh, America was uh, found on conquest. The um, Europeans came over and they, you know, saw the land and and they uh, conquered the uh, peoples who were already here, uh, the Native Americans, and they conquested the land. That's how all nations, not just the United States, uh, all nations were, were were formed. It was through conquest. Like European nations, nations on the continent of Africa. Uh, every continent, South America, those nations were uh, conquered through conquest. So that's something that's just taking place throughout world history. It's not um, just here in America. That happens everywhere. So I just want to say that. What was that, sir? Yeah, Ukraine, same thing. Russia tries to take back Ukraine. The Ukraine territory was actually part of the old Soviet Union. Uh, but when the Soviet Union broke up in, I think it was 1989 or 91, uh, you know, the Soviet Union had broken up after, social, after communism had, had fallen. And so when the Soviet Union broke up, those countries formed 
those territories formed their own countries, and Ukraine was one of the countries that formed out of the old Soviet Union. And Vladimir Putin is trying to basically bring Ukraine back into the Soviet Union through conquest to take over. He's already annexed parts of uh, Ukraine. He's trying to basically conquest the whole nation again. He wasn't able to take Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine. That's where when you want to conquest the land, you take down the capital. And he wasn't able to do that uh, successfully. So that's a good example. That that's what he's trying to do is, is conquest um, the land, con conquest Ukraine and bring them back into um, Russia. He hasn't been, he's been unsuccessful in doing it. So that's a good example there, Harvey. So we're in the beginning of the third chapter. Let me read the first seven verses right quick. This is about King Og. Uh, the last chapter again, we looked at um, Sihon. So now we're looking at King Og. It says, then we return. And remember, again, the first four chapters are recalling their wilderness wanderings. Okay, so it's, a, it's a recap of everything. So then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Agob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars besides a great many rural towns and we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon king of Heshbon utterly destroying the men women and children of every city but all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves booty is basically like what's left over okay so we see that king Og was defeated and you see the same language in this uh, passage that you saw back in chapter 2. If you look at, um, now with, with Sihon, Israel had asked for permission to pass through, and Sihon said no. And so they went to war with them. Uh, this time, that wasn't the case. The Lord just told them, do not fear uh, Og. Why? Because God had given uh, him, you know, God giving them the victory already. And God had already given them this land, just as we saw in chapter 2, verse 29, until I crossed the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God is giving us. So again, this is what God has ordained, that Israel conquered this land. So the same thing we see here at the beginning of uh, chapter 3. So the conflict uh, engaged with Og and then you have the confidence in verse 2. The Lord said, do not fear him, for I have delivered him. He's already done it. It's a done deal beforehand. I have delivered him and all his people into his hand. I'm sorry, and his land into your hand. So that was the confidence that they went with. It's like going into a game knowing that you are, you've already won. When you when you know that something is already done, you have what? You got confidence. You know, you already know it's going to be done. You have nothing to worry about, nothing to be anxious about. You already know that it's done. So Israel, when they were going to uh, going up against uh, Og, they went knowing that the victory was already theirs. Now, this conquest that God had called them to was comprehensive. What does it mean by comprehensive? It, it covered all. It covered everything. Verse 3, it says, all the people. All the people. And then verses 4 through 6, it says, all the cities. 
Okay. And then verse 7, it said, all the booty. Okay. So they were going to kill all the natives, all the people, conquer all the cities, and, and take all the loot, all that was left over for themselves. And so then we see in verses 8 through 10, uh, we see a summary of both of the conquests. At that time, we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on the side of the Jordan. And why, again, did God destroy the Amorites? Because they resisted Israel when they uh, asked for passage through the land. So this was God's judgment against them. And so verses 8 through 10 give us, gives us a summary. And then it gives a little footnote at the end. For only all king of Bashan remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was uh, as an iron bedstead. Is not, uh, is it not rather in Rabah of the people of the Amorites? Nine cubits is his length, and four cubits is width, according to the standard cubit. Okay, so that's basically like a coffin. Uh, that's what that is. And that, that's just a, a little add-on to that. So now, the last part of chapter three gets into the final preparations to cross the Jordan and some issues are going to be uh, uh, resolved a reward responsibility uh, rulership and um, you know rationalization so first we see the issue of reward so uh, looking at verse 12 here look at verses 12 through 17 it says and this land which we possess at that time from Aurora which is by the river Arnon and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities I give to the Reubenites and the Gadites. So what God is doing here is distributing um, the possessed land across the Jordan. He's he's basically allotting to the, the different tribes. So um, in 12b, we see the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, the Reubenites and the Gadites. Then in verse 13, you see the tribe uh, Jair, the son of Manasseh, and his region. And then in verse 15, uh, he gave Gilead to Machir. And then the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave from Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river, as the border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the people of Ammon. So they were on the border of the Ammonites. And we're going to see this kind of play out later on in this book how they're going to come into conflict with the um, Ammonites so we see the land being uh, distributed so far so now we're down to verse 18 through 20 we see the issue of responsibility so it says here in verse 18 then I commanded you at that time saying the Lord your God has given you this land to possess again God keeps confirming his covenant keeps affirming his promise with his people all you men of valor shall cross over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel. But your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord has given the rest, uh, given rest rather to your brethren, as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at the time, saying, Your eyes have seen all the Lord your God has done to those two kings. So will the Lord do all to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Man. So. The this possession was going to be the west side of the Jordan because right now they're on the east side. They have to cross over the Jordan. Okay, so remember they're on the banks of the Jordan. So God is basically issuing um, orders of responsibility. But there's something to note here, the responsibility of fighting. Who's going to lead the charge? You see in verse 18, who did God um, call to lead the charge? All you men of valor. All you men. We talked about this uh, last week with the patriarchal nature of the Bible and how 
you know, uh, a lot of, I would say, uh, people in uh, Christians and, of course, non-Christians, I'm not particularly concerned about them, but uh, even among Christians, you have uh, people who um, fall into uh, the ditch that the patriarchy is bad. Patriarchy means male rule. You know, patriarch, matriarch, matriarch, maternal, uh, uh, women, female. So we talk about patriarch, you're talking about uh, male um, rule or male led. So scripture uh, teaches that as a principle for a reason. The men go out to protect who? The women, the children, the home, livestock, the home, you know, their their uh, reason for sustenance. This this is a principle that we see here just in this passage. You know, period. That's that's how military was. World militaries were for a long time. You know, militaries have been around since Bible days. You know, Israel had an army. You know, all the other nations had armies. That's that's been around uh, since antiquity. But in all those cases, it was the men, and not only men, but men of what valor. That means men of honor. They cross over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel. So these men were charged with going uh, over to, to secure the land. The women, children, livestock stayed back. Again, the men are the ones who go out and do what? They fight. They lead. They defend. That is what God has called men to do, period. Just like in the home. The husband defends the family. The husband fights for the family. The husband uh, provides for the family. But did Paul say if a man can't take care of his own household, he is worse than a what? An unbeliever, infidel. Because that is the duty of men, not to sit home and play video games all day. Okay? Or play video games at all for that matter but no um, but that's not the job of men but look at the kind of culture we live in now uh, men have been feminized and even in the church um, where where men have been feminized and it's definitely uh, prevalent in our culture we've talked about that the last couple of weeks but you know I was um, you know I, I was in the military in the Navy and Harvey was in you know before me but when I was in the Navy, by the time I was getting out in 1991, they started bringing women on the ships. And I didn't like that. And I wasn't even a Christian then. You know, you got a small company of women coming on the ship because all the guys were going crazy like that. They haven't seen girls before. But they kept them, you know, in their own birthing, private, so forth and so on. It's only 60 of them at that time. But now all the Navy ships are, like, fully integrated. And I'm like, I cannot be in today's military because I don't think that I mean, I'm definitely not going to have a, a, a female ordinance man because they can't lift those bombs and missiles and stuff like we did. So they're probably doing uh, other type of duties. But when I see a, uh, like, the, the it was a basketball game on the USS Abraham Lincoln that was this past weekend. It was, I forget which teams were playing. But they played on the flight deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln out in uh, Washington uh, where, where she's uh, docked and, and I saw all the women sailors out there, and I was just—I told her I just had this visceral reaction, you know. And I saw that, uh, but I don't think that women should be in combat, especially now. Maybe in the military, like nurses and stuff like that, and all those things, I can understand that. But now you have the military pushing for women in combat. It's just not the same. Women should not be in combat. That's an abomination. Uh, that's what we have men for. What the military is saying is women are better at being men than men are. That's what they're saying. Yeah, because of the feminization, like I was saying. So, uh, but the Bible gives us a better blueprint. The men go out and do what? Defend. Think about the great wars that, that our nation, the Revolutionary War, going back to even then, the Civil War. Those men, uh, over 600,000, gave their lives or died, you know, defending our, our nation. You know, think about World War II, the battle at Normandy, Normandy invasion, all those men went into you know North, the shores of Normandy France those were men of valor you know they were fighting for what the women at home 
They were leaving their wives behind. They were leaving their children behind. That's why they're called the greatest generation. You know, they, uh, the men that went to Vietnam, as, as bad of a war that was, they drafted me. And my father went over there, did two tours. You know, the men went over and, and fought just and unjust wars, but it was all men of valor. Now, you had women as support personnel. Like I said, you had the, the nurse corps and all that, you know, that's fine, support personnel, but not combat. Combat is for men. So we see that standard here in the Bible, all men of valor go before your brethren, but your wives, your little ones, and livestock, they don't go. Men protect their children. Men defend um, their livelihood. The livestock was their livelihood. They lived in an agrarian society, so livestock was very important. It was it was a commodity. The more livestock you had, the more wealth you had. So they protected their 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 living, their their um, sustenance. You know how they survived to eat. So they protected all those things. And that's what God calls me into now. Again, that's the higher standard that we as men have. It's a biblical standard. It's God's standard. I can't imagine not being able to work. <laughs> I just can't. I, I'm not lazy. I've had a job. I, I had a, you know, it's different when you're unemployed, but unemployed and not working are two different things. You know, there was a spare where I was unemployed for like, I think, five, six months uh, before I started selling insurance after I left the teaching profession. I was unemployed for like five, six months. And it was hard because I was looking for jobs all the time. This is way back before Indeed and all that stuff, you know, um, social media and all that. We didn't have all that. Um, but it was hard. But it's because I wanted to work. You know, I actually wanted to provide. That's what God called us to do and also to defend. So, we see that principle in there. So they were to do this uh, until that land had been what conquered, until God gave them uh, rest to their uh, brethren. And then they chose a leader, or God chose a leader. Israel always had to have a leader to lead them. It wasn't going to be Moses. We're going to see that in a little bit. He says, I commanded Joshua at that time. Remember, Joshua was uh, him and Caleb were the two that God had commended uh, that came back from uh, spying out the land. So the charge to Joshua was to maintain confidence in the Lord who fights for Israel. Again, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them. Why should we never fear? We talked about this Sunday with fear of man, how that how Peter had fear of man in Galatians 2. Why should we never fear? What does the last phrase say? Lord fights for you. Our confidence is based on God's continuing presence and God's dominion, God's sovereignty. We have nothing to fear not even people because God is with us simply put and all throughout scripture especially the Old Testament narratives you'll see that God I'm with you do not fear Joshua 1 and 9 you know when God God uh, you know uh, commanded Joshua Joshua 1 and 9 is one of the most well quoted uh, scriptures in all the Bible fear not for I am with you God is always with us. We have nothing to fear. Man can only do so much to us. Only so much to us. They can only say so much about us. God told Joshua, you're going to lead them, but you're not going to lead them alone. Because I'm with you. When God calls us to do something, when God commissions us, guess what? He's going to be with us. And we have nothing to fear because of this. So Joshua's, and our confidence is always based on the Lord's presence. It's always based on it. Our confidence should always be 
because God is with us. We have that confidence. And so we get to Moses here. He's speaking in first person, verse 23. Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I love that. Man, that's a great rhetorical question. I pray let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. Excuse me. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. But command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him for he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see so we stay in the valley opposite uh, Beth Peor so Moses was very bold to ask the Lord he pled with him as it said so um you know, after those victories with uh, Og and Sihon, you know, after seeing the land divided, I guess Moses uh, got full of himself and, <laughs> you know, was filling himself, as they say, and, and he, he wanted to um, request the Lord. Now, I, I preached on this prayer years ago when I went through great prayers of the Bible, and... Um, the first thing we note in verse 23 is the intensity of the prayer. How do we know it's intense? Because it says he pled with the Lord. You know, to plead basically means to beg. You know, like, please, Lord, please. You know, kind of like that. He, he pled with the Lord. And then he gives an invocation to invoke. Okay. Oh, Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. That's invocation. That's inviting God by, 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 by speaking of him. Praising God. Then he praised God for his power. Okay. Your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth. Who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. So he was, he was praising God. And this is actually, you know, I, when I, when I was pre preaching on this, prayer uh, some years ago I was talking about like certain methods of prayer you know we pray to God we should invoke uh, his goodness invoke his sovereignty invoke his attributes okay invoke his greatness you know we don't just go to God and just ask what we want and then just leave you know treating him like a cosmic Santa Claus so Moses, he, his prayer was intense. He gave an invocation. And then he praised God for his, his power. And let's look at that praise. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? That's a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is understood as who? No one. No one can do that. And so after he does this, he gives his petition. I pray or I ask, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, these pleasant mountains and Lebanon. Okay. So he gives, that's his petition. What is he asking? That the Lord let him um, go cross over and see. That was his petition. But it didn't happen for him, did it? This is the thing about God that we must know. And it's difficult for us to grasp sometimes, even myself. 
it is God's prerogative whether to answer our prayers in the affirmative or not. When we pray to God, we're at his mercy. And that's something hard for even me to grasp sometimes. Because when we pray to God, we always want what? The affirmative answer, don't we? We want that yes. But that should never stop us from praying to God and seeking his face. Even when our requests seem to be you know, what we think is too much, it should not keep us from praying to the Lord. We should not back down from it. But it is God's prerogative to answer our prayer uh, as yes, no, or, or not now. Those are the, the three basic answers that we'll receive. Our prayers are always answered. Always. It may not, no, always answered. Either answer will either be yes, no, or not now. No is an answer. <laughs> you know, your child asks you, can I stay out to 3 o'clock in the morning? No. That's an answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or not right now. Wait until you become an adult and you can stay out as long as you want. <laughs> okay. That's an answer too. So when we think of answer prayer, we always think it has to be in the affirmative, but it's not all, it doesn't always have to be in the affirmative. So Moses gave a petition, but it says, but the Lord was angry with me on your account. The response of anger. And he said, he would not listen to me. I, can, I, I don't know how Moses felt because scripture is silent on that. But can you just imagine how Moses did feel that the Lord uh, would not listen to him? So the Lord said to him, what? Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. So what does he do as a... Um, this is like a consolation how does he console Moses he tells him to go up to Mount Pisgah okay and look all around him the north south east and west uh, basically and behold it with your eyes for you shall not cross over this Jordan so the now by the Lord First, a response of anger, and then a response of consolation. It, I guess you could say at least the Lord let him look over the land. He didn't have to do that. You're right. He didn't have to at least see it exactly. So that's 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 a very good observation there, uh, the Lord. So and that, and that's true. That's merciful. That is merciful. That God let because again, it was God's prerogative to let him see it or not. It's up to God. What up to Moses? Moses asked and the Lord said, no, you can't cross over, but you can at least what? Look over. And that was an act of mercy by the Lord. So instead, he uh, told him to command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. Now, this is, um, I like what God said to him here. Joshua was going to lead the people. Moses was the leader right now, but Joshua was going to basically take the mantle uh, of leadership after him. So what did God tell Moses to do? Encourage him and strengthen him. In our context, we don't see this a lot because people are very self-seeking and they don't want to, you know, help bring along other people behind them to lead or, or prepare them for prepare them for that. Because we live in a very what self saturated, everybody wants to be a boss. You know, everybody wants to be a boss and not lead people. And not bring someone up behind them. You know, I I was looking at a study on this. I was discussing this with another friend of mine who owns a restaurant. You know that most family-owned restaurants 
close after the first generation passes? Because usually the children either don't want the restaurant or the ones who started don't train them and, and pass it down to them. It was a restaurant in Lincoln uh, down at the old train station. A barbecue restaurant, I forgot the name of it. It closed about five, six years ago. Man, they had some good barbecue. Me and Frank used to drive down there sometimes just to just to go down and eat at the old train station at the old downtown Lincoln. I don't even think Lincoln has a downtown now. But um, I forgot the name of the barbecue place. Fran probably remember. But after the after the father died, the restaurant closed. And it was over for like 20-something years. But after the father died, you know, the thing about the restaurant business, I talked to a lot of restaurant owners. Uh, they don't own the restaurant. The restaurant owns them. That's just where it works. It's not as glamorous as it looks. You don't get days off and vacation and stuff like that. You just don't. But that after the father died, that restaurant couldn't stay open. They ended up closing down. You think about that generational leadership passing down to the next generation. That doesn't happen a lot with those in those type of contexts. But in our self-saturated culture, it definitely doesn't happen. People don't want to train and mentor those under them. They want to keep it all for themselves. But God shows us through Moses a, a, a better way. Moses didn't have jealousy or envy, which he could have had. But he didn't have that. Rather, what did he do? He encouraged him. And he strengthened him. And this is kind of a picture of what Christ did with his disciples. You know, Moses is a type of Christ. Of course, Joshua is too. But in this uh, case where we are in this narrative, uh, Moses encouraged and strengthened him just as Christ did his disciples as uh, the disciples were going to, uh, you know, start the first church, first century church. And so what did Christ do with his disciples? He spent time with them for, what, three years, encouraging them, strengthening them. Uh, he, he told Peter, strengthen the brethren. You know, when you are converted, when you come back. Uh, after he said he was going to deny him three times, you know. You no, know, he said the same desires to sift him as wheat. <clears throat> uh, but he said, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Okay, so Christ prepared his disciples for what? For leadership. And the disciples prepared their disciples for leadership. Else the church would have never grown. It would have never spread if those disciples did not uh, strengthen and encourage their followers. And that helped uh, the church to proliferate in the first century. And, you know, here we are 2,000 years later still proliferating. But Christ did that with his disciples. He encouraged and strengthened them. And that is what we ought to do for the younger generation. Is to encourage them in the Lord as, as much as we can and, and strengthen them and equip them. You know, as much as Amen. Encourage and strengthen each other. That is true. It does. Amen. That's true. It's a good point because, yeah, because when you isolate it, you don't you don't get that, and that's what people miss when, um, you know, I, I've talked to people before inviting them to church and everything. And, oh, you know, I don't, I don't have to go to church, be a Christian, blah blah blah. Uh, and uh, I'm serious. The first question to ask is book, chapter, verse, please. <laughs> Context, you know. I always ask, like, wh where do you get that from? Oh, well, it's a bunch of hypocrites, blah, blah. I can be a hypocrite at home, you know. S stuff like that. It's, uh, the same old tropes, same old um, lame excuses. But what they're missing out, on, missing out on is fellowship and encouragement. You know, that's the that's part of what the gathered body does. We We fellowship with each other. We encourage each other and we strengthen each other we pray for each other you know you you, you can't be a lone ranger uh in in the church that's that's what we're all here for I, i've been uh, god's grace i've been a uh, believer for 31 going on 32 years and man i always enjoy being around the saints i do i don't get tired of it 
I mean, I you know, I every church I've been a part of, I've always I'm a I like people anyway, you know. But I just like being around the saints. Yes. We have a common inheritance, we have a common destiny, we have a common salvation, we have a common savior. You know, we have a common faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and in all and through all. That is what we have in common. And through that relationship, we strengthen and equip each other and we encourage each other. That's what people are missing when they say, I don't need the church. The fact that you said that means that you do need it. <laughs> because you did. One by one, exactly. He sent them out by twos. He surely did. When he sent the 70 out, he did the same thing when he sent the 12 out. So he sent them out in twos. He didn't send them out, send them out uh, isolated. So we see in Scripture again how leadership should, looks, should look. rather. Um, men out on the front lines and strengthening and encouraging uh, those who are coming up uh, before us. And that leads us to chapter 4. We're going to do just the beginning part of the chapter. So now, this is the last chapter in the looking back part. So verse chapter 4 here says, Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today every one of you amen you should not add to these words so the opening challenge I see three things in here to listen and to live listen to God's revealed law now O Israel listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe so we are to listen to God's commands that is something that we must always practice and always uh, do. And statutes of judgments are basically like rules for conduct, how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to, to live. Now, just imagine for a second, okay, why does man rebel against God? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. But why does man rebel against God? Man thinks he knows better than God how to what live how to govern his life that's why we rebel against God so when Moses is telling Israel listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you and observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God your father has given you these are God's rules these are God's words and we ought to listen to God's revealed code of ethics as we see in scripture. And to listen in essence means to take heed uh, to them. And then you should not add to the word which I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command. Not to add. So this means that the words that God was giving them is sufficient. If something is sufficient, you don't need to do what? Add to it or take away from it. Like the food that I cook at home. <laughs> it is sufficient. It doesn't need to be added to or nothing needs to be. There's no too much. There's no too much salt because I don't use salt. What was that, Daryl? <laughs> I'm just giving an illustration of what sufficient looks like. You know, so the meat that I cook on the grill is sufficient. It is sufficiently seasoned. So 
but sufficient means like it's, it's what? It's enough. Nothing needs to be added to it or taken away. God's word is sufficient. It is enough. We don't need to add to God's word. And we don't need to take away from it. You know, we talked about legalism on, on this past Sunday, you know, looking at Galatians uh, 2. You know, what legalism is, you're basically adding a law where there is no law. You know, you're adding extra requirements uh, to Scripture. And when you do that, you make it insufficient. You render it insufficient. You're saying Scripture's not enough. You're saying God's Word is not enough. God's commands are not sufficient enough. I know better than God what I should do when you take that attitude you're saying that scripture is not sufficient that's what apostate churches do that's how they became apostate because they started disbelieving the sufficiency of scripture and after they did that the whole house of cards falls down they begin to do things in the church allow things in the church ordain things in the church uh, that, that go uh, totally against uh, scripture so we see here in verse 5 or verse 4 hold fast those who held fast are the ones who did what we're going to make it over there's something to say about holding fast to God's word holding fast to truth Paul said and it was either Titus or 1st Timothy uh, to hold fast uh, to sound words you know we have to hold fast hold fast means to, to cling tightly to we cling tightly to God's word we cling tightly to God's command and God's truth that's what we are called to do so then we get to verse 5 here surely I have taught you the statutes and judgments just as the Lord your God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. This part right here, I want to talk about the integrity um, of the Christian life, living life with integrity. This is what God is calling Israel to do, living with integrity. Why? Because the other nations are going to see how they, how they live. So Israel is responsible to maintain the integrity of God's law. God is calling them to be responsible for that. It says in verse 5, I taught you the statutes that you should act according to them. Okay? Why does God teach us his word? So that we can live by it. Not just so we can say, okay, we know what God means or we know what God is saying or we know what God is commanding no he teaches us these things so that we can do what live by them and living by them gives us integrity integrity is very important in the Christian life again I keep going back to this past Sunday uh, with Peter uh, Paul confronted Peter Peter wasn't living with integrity because he was behaving one way around the Jews and another way around the Gentiles we talked about uh, the sin of hypocrisy that he wasn't living out the freedom that he had in Christ so he didn't have integrity in that moment and that's why Paul confronted him because he was basically compromising the message of the gospel and Paul didn't want that to happen so we are called as believers we have the unique privilege of being called to live with integrity according to God's uh, revealed law we have a responsibility to show covenant uh, loyalty loyalty to, to the covenant that uh, we have with God and that's what he was telling Israel 
Verse 6, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, the nations around them, the Amorites and the Moabites, the, the Hivites and the Jebusites, all these ites, all these nations that Israel was going to pass through. They had the responsibility. They were God's chosen people. Okay? They had the responsibility of demonstrating a faithfulness uh, to God's covenant because Israel was unique among all those nations as Christian guess what we're unique we're the chosen among all the peoples of the world we have Christian privilege do y'all do y'all know that you know they talk about white privilege no there's Christian privilege. I, I think I preached on that uh, when I was preaching through the first or second Peter at the beginning of one of those two books. Uh, I talked about Christian privilege. We're called by God. We're privileged people. Do y'all realize that? We're privileged. We're called by God. We're a peculiar people, a people of His own possession. Did Paul say? I mean, Peter say we are a holy nation. A warrior priesthood, a people of his own, or a peculiar people. That's privilege. Giving praise to him who what brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, we're privileged. Israel was a nation of God's light. They were a chosen generation. Okay? They were a people of his possession. So he was telling them, You're my possession, you're my covenant people. Therefore, you are the wisdom and you are the understanding here in verse 6 in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes. So these heathens, these pagans, were going to hear about all the statutes of God. They were going to hear about them. And they were going to see how faithful Israel was to them. Yes. That's true. Amen. Amen. And the same with us as believers today. That's what this is a picture of. God wants those who don't know him to know him through who? Through us. Just as God wanted those nations to know him through Israel. Israel, what did Jesus say about us? We're the what city that's set on the hill. We're the light of the world. Israel was the light of the world in, in, in their time, in antiquity. That nation, that was God's, and we're going to get into that late in, in later chapters. These are God's chosen people. And they were to be a light to the pagans. Yeah, <laughs> right. Jerusalem was like up there. Okay, so... They, that's what they were called to be and we as Christians are called to be that uh, city also okay so this is uh, Israel's unique privilege that they have so here at verse 7 when I was reading this I just got some uh, you know sometimes I do get goosebumps when I read the Bible because I like to God writes good stories he does yes God writes some good stories Yes. In fact, I take that back. God writes the best stories. You know, he writes the best stories. I, I like the, the poetic language here. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? Man, as the Lord our God is to us. Wow. Man, that's, this is reminding Israel of their privileged status, of their unique privilege that they have. They're the only nation of all the nations that has God near them. Saints, we have God with us. We have God with us. Those of us who are believers, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. The third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. I like that. Let me read that again. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, 
we may call upon him. <laughs> I'm just pausing. I'm, I'm, I'm having a Selah moment. <laughs> Man. It is. Yes. For whatever reason, we may call upon him. It doesn't matter. We call upon God. Amen. We can we can we can go to God for whatever reason. We can say, God, I, I'm I'm sorry to bother you. <laughs> no, whatever reason. Why? Because he's he he's near to us. We're his children. I heard this. Uh, I used this illustration before. I've heard it. Uh, I think it was Vody Balcom who, who I first heard say it. He says, no king will wake up for anyone at 3 o'clock in the morning unless it is his child. And he was talking about that as far as us praying to, to, to God. If a king will wake up early in the morning for his child, how much more the perfect king who sits on his throne who intercedes for us, who advocates for us, who's serving us as his high priest. How much more will he hear our prayers? And he does it faithfully around the clock. Anytime and for whatever reason. So this is Israel's privileged status. They're, they're, they're privileged, God's people. And then he continues. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day. This shows the specialness of God's laws. We can't look at because the unbeliever, the, the, the secularist, they want us to be ashamed of God ashamed of his laws ashamed of his commands the world wants us to be ashamed they're the ones who should be ashamed because they're not obeying God we should not be ashamed for what? obeying God but the world wants to shame us as Christians and call us names and make up names make up new vocabulary to shame us to shame our God but what does Moses say? What great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous, what kind of judgments? Righteous judgments. As are in all this law which I set before you this day. God's law is distinctive. It's good for us. But again, man in his rebellion don't want to obey or doesn't rather want to obey him God's laws and statutes set Christianity from every other religion which is all the religions are false religions God's because it leads to human flourishing if we follow them if we don't it leads to what destruction civilizational destruction destruction of lands, nations destructions of cities and homes and families that's the uniqueness of God's law and that's why it was, it was, it was uh, special for Israel God, in other words God gives us what is good for us he gives us what's good for us and Moses was reminding Israel of this what great nation that has such statutes these are great the commands of God First John 5 the commands of God are not burdensome they may feel like burden us because we don't want to obey them <laughs> that's what it boils down to we don't want to obey God's statutes that's what makes them burdensome that is true 
Exactly. Absolutely. It does. Totally changes. Amen. I'm going to stop right there. I know it's kind of in the middle of a passage, but um, it's, uh, it's about 7 o'clock. But just to kind of put a bow on all this, um, Israel's unique privileges motivate their obedience. Our unique privilege as believers should motivate our obedience to God. Because God has called us. God has given us great commands. That that should be our motivation, uh, you know, to obey him. We are a Christian. You are a unique people. And we have nothing to hold our head down about in shame. The world tries to shame us. But we have nothing to be ashamed about. Man, we, we should wear our Christian, and I'm talking about true biblical Christianity, not, you know, this cultural Christianity stuff. We wear our Christianity with honor. We should not be ashamed. Paul and Sister, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was the power of God and the salvation for those who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. We have nothing to be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thanks.